Hi, this is Disability Saves the World with Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled artists, scholars, activists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, their hobbies, and the adventures they've taken. Most importantly, you'll hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda, he, him pronouns. I have a PhD in Public Health Sciences. I am a postdoc in London in the UK, and I identify as a fat, disabled cis man of color. If you don't know me, hopefully you'll get to know me a little bit more over the course of the next few episodes. So today we're joined by Danielle Landry. Danielle is a PhD candidate in the Graduate Department of Sociology at York University in Toronto, Ontario. Danielle recently designed and delivered the first course in disability studies at Centennial College in Scarborough. I'm so excited to speak with her today about her research. How are disabled people already doing this right? What can we learn from that? Our life outside of academia. Like if I met them, I would just be my dorky old self and I wouldn't even know. And ask her, of course, how she thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Danielle. Thank you for coming on the show today. Hey. Um, So we'll start off by right away jumping into what I call segment one, which is insight, the project, the research, the work, the art. I want to start off by asking why DS or why math studies um, in this case, as I know you're a prominent math studies scholar. Um, So why those fields of study? Well, as somebody who is mad identified and has been mentored into, you know, community involvement and advocacy and activism for over a decade, it's it feels like home. Yeah, absolutely, doing math studies and doing that within a school of disability studies over the last decade as well. Um, I've certainly learned a lot in that field in that area, even though my my academic background is a, as a sociologist, um, I. I really just am passionate about both of those those areas and MAD studies in particular because it's really emerging uh, and it's really um, a participatory and involved in a way that I think is pretty cutting edge and cool. Uh, so I guess it's just driven by, you know, it's connected to and driven by, you know, a lot of interest in my life, like around my, my advocacy, my activism and um, as well as my academic interests and just, you know, the the fires in my gut <laughs> about how I want to change the world too. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you kind of heard mad studies or heard someone reference this idea of like um studying with or from the vantage point of people who had been institutionalized or people who had experienced like the psychiatric system? For me it would have been when I took the course of history of madness actually as an undergraduate student when David was teaching it which right. is David Revel yeah, yeah David Revel was teaching that course I, I think I took it back in like 2007 maybe right. um, and so for me it was a, a a light bulb kind of moment it was the one undergraduate class where I sat in the front of the class rather than trying to melt into the wallpaper at the back um, and it was really because 
I was at a turning point in my life too. I mean, I was coming back to school in my mid twenties. Uh, I had experienced a psychiatric system as a youth, and so um, it it was it was really interesting because for me that helped me to get the language I needed to politicize my own experience to make right. sense of it in a way because I was actually coming off psychiatric medication when I was taking that class, um, and really just helped to kind of make sense of some of the things that I never had words for, right? Some of the stuff I'd gone through and felt a lot of things about, but never really had a way to articulate. And so going through that course really, and connecting with David and then starting to make connections into the community, um, in particular through like different peer support and advocacy groups, uh, after that, that was kind of my, my entry point and my kind of light bulb moment in terms of, you know, what is this stuff? What, you know, what's happening here? Um, around mad studies. I mean, I connect you so much on this idea of language. I remember, like, when I entered university, it was what, like, kept me, I think what has kept me in academia for so long is that it's given me an entire language to describe experiences um, that I, you know, that I didn't know how to beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. It was just, like, so, it's so profoundly, I think, significant when you learn about when you learn how to articulate experiences, right? Um, and that somehow you can connect with people through that process. It's really empowering to actually have those words, right? Yeah. Say, yeah. I also took like uh, disability issues with Esther Ignagni, um, even before I took the course with David. So I had been introduced kind of by taking this elective with Esther. And, you know, that was totally new to me. I hadn't really you know, connected much around disability studies. And she's a fabulous teacher. Like she really gives um, concrete examples and then kind of gets you to engage with them and grapple with them in ways that make you do the work, <laughs> but also gets you to a place where you didn't think you were gonna go. Um, so I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me. It's just like this, these kind of like starting points, which is funny now that I teach in the same school, but that was really where I kind of um, started to learn about those those terms and those fields. I was going to say it's somewhat full circle now that you do kind of uh, run the online programming. You've taught in the disability studies uh, at Ryerson for a number of years now. Um, and as like I said in the intro, you're also, you know, uh, branching out and in introducing disability studies to a whole new department um, and a whole new, you know, uh, college essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I'm bringing it to Centennial College now, and that's been a fabulous experience. Centennial College is is a really great place to work. I really love the colleagues there. It's very collegial. It's not competitive. Like there's an amazing group of folks that work at Centennial, and so that's also starting to feel like home. Oh, great. So I want to know what specific kind of topic or topic area you're looking at, um, whether it's a project that you're doing, like whether it's your research project for your PhD or if there's another kind of project you want to talk about. Um, uh, is there something that kind of a research question that you're asking yourself right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm proposal writing for my, my dissertation. Um, so that's really top of mind. Um, and I've been planning this project for five years now and I really I'm sticking to what I had imagined uh, five years ago because I really am excited by the idea of taking on this project and I think it's it's timely and it's really relevant so I'm particularly interested in what are called consumer-run businesses 
And so these are uh, social enterprises that have like a community economic development approach. And so they are, are specifically run by um, people with mental health and addictions histories. Um, and there are a number of these kinds of consumer-run businesses uh, across Ontario, and some of them have been around for 30 years. And this really came out of the consumer survivor ex-patient movement. Um, and there hasn't been that many studies of these particular enterprises. Um, some people, I've, the, the studies that I have read have kind of equated them in some ways with like other kinds of voc rehab or sheltered workshop type programs, but they are significantly different. And there are a few studies that have shown that, you know, they aren't the same thing at all. And they really aren't in part because they, they were started and are run entirely by people with mental health and addiction histories. Um, they're all kinds of small businesses, like things from like landscaping to coffee shops to cleaning businesses. Um, and it's a really, um, exciting uh, opportunity for me to try and you know learn about these businesses because I'm 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 interested in how they do accessibility I think when it comes to accessibility in the workplace and in, in like the integrated labor market um, we have a long way to go when it comes particularly to folks with psychiatric disabilities yeah people with mental health and addiction histories and even just in, invisible disabilities um, more broadly uh, we don't know how to make workplaces accessible effectively. Um, most workplaces aren't accessible. We know how to do accommodations sometimes. Mostly it's it's temporary accommodations. And we can, you know, like there are good policies around, um, you know, uh, accessibility for folks uh, with, you know, sensory or physical disabilities. But really there, there aren't a lot of great policies out there in terms of how to make um, a workplace particularly accessible, not simply accommodating, but accessible for people with mental health and addictions histories and so I'm really interested in how these businesses do accessibility uh, concrete practices of accessibility what are they doing on you know an everyday basis and uh, what that looks like and then what we can learn and apply to integrate it you know other kinds of um, uh, work spaces and places and I know that there's some stuff that we won't be able to translate like the fact that you in let's say you work for a small uh, social enterprise and everyone there you know identifies as, as having a mental health history you don't have to explain you know if you're feeling really crazy and you can't come into work that day you might yeah. not have to um, hide that in the same way you might not feel ashamed in the same way um, as you would if you were you know working you know let's say for some big business XYZ right so I think there's some stuff that might be harder to translate, but I think there's also a lot that we can learn around accessible practices and can um, adapt uh, in terms of, you know, policy and practices. So, yeah, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be able to have the chance to hopefully go around Ontario, visit some of these businesses, talk to folks who work in the businesses at all levels. And uh, yeah, and then do some archival digging too. I love archival research, so that'll be fun too. And look at how, you know, how these businesses came to be in the 90s, how they got funded. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really timely too, because some of these businesses have been scooped up. Um, some are thriving, but some have also, um, are at risk of or currently being scooped up by um, mental health agencies and providers, which really changes the nature of the business and kind of almost returns it back to like a voc rehab model. Um, 
it's different when you have a board and, you know, like you can make these kind of independent decisions um, and there, there are community-based routes. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm planning to do in a nutshell. Are you finding that in addition to like a, that, that these social enterprises kind of are producing a kind of access that could be translated? Is there also different like economic structures? Like uh, is labor, uh, you know, conceptualized differently? Um, uh, are they essentially, am I asking like, is it different pay? Is it different pay structures? Yeah, um, it is, it is different, um, in a number of ways. So the, the way in which the organization, um, organizations are, are funded is different. So they would have secure funding, uh, in part from the ministry of health or some other kinds of funding streams like grants, right? So that they can have this kind of um, social and political goals rather than simply just being a business seeking profit. So it's right. not um, um, like a strictly like a small business model. It's like if you have your revenue is coming from, you know, secure funding, then the other rest of the funding that comes from the actual business ensures that, you know, you can pay your employees a fair wage, um, that sort of thing. So there is always that kind of security and it, it allows a social enterprise to, you know, have those kinds of uh, goals, right? To empower their workers and create opportunities for marginalized workers. Um, it is different also in terms of specifically for folks with uh, psychiatric disabilities, mental health and addiction histories. The pay structure keeps in mind that a lot of these folks are coming in either on OW or ODSP, right? So, um, so the the, these are part-time positions for the most part, and the way in which they pay uh, takes into consideration the, the, the in Ontario at least, the, the clawbacks that happen where that cap you at how much you can work. Yeah. So instead of penalizing workers for working um, above a particular marker, they actually adapt to that and say, well, you know, you can work as much as you want and, you know, like this number of hours and... And so it, it ensures that the worker can really benefit from the opportunity too. So is there an underlying uh, theoretical approach that you're taking to this work? Is there someone that you're reading that's kind of guiding your thinking or a group of scholars that you're reading that are guiding your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's funny, like when you start your graduate work, I think a lot of people in MAD studies start with Foucault, start with post-structuralism, right? And so I did that too, right? I really came in through discourse. Um, and I still have uh, an interest in that. But more recently, in the last couple of years, I'm really drawn to feminist political economy mm. as kind of my grounding, particularly when you're looking at issues of labor. And, you know, you have to consider kind of the, the basic oppression that happens under capitalism. Yeah. Um, and so that for me has been a, a real theoretical orientation is, is, is both discourse, um, but also um, the feminist political economy approach. I always go back to the work of Dorothy Smith and I find right. her, her work is um, always relevant and bridges kind of this, this um, historical materialist and post-structuralist kind of um, approaches in a way that makes sense to me. And I, so I, yeah, I, I definitely draw on Dorothy Smith's work. And even though I'm not doing like a strict institutional ethnography, or I'm not planning to I, in my research, I am really interested in, in her work. And I'm kind of going to be doing more like a case study because I'm doing like looking at very particular kind of business. And I'm hoping to hit as many of those businesses as I can 
So it's more like an extended case uh, case study, and I'm going to draw on um, Michael Burroway, who did a lot of work on case studies, um, and also uh, Flibbery, who really um, has a methodolo methodological approach to, to case studies that I find useful. So that's kind of what I'm reading. I always go, go back to Smith, though. Yeah. Well, Smith is good, too, because um, uh, it is a really nice kind of, uh, like you said, bridging between also like methodology and theory. Absolutely. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit methodology. I want to hear more about these case studies and the fact that you're going to be visiting these businesses. So is there a particular kind of method that you'll be using and what does a case study approach look like? Well, again, I'm still at the visualization portion of yeah. that. Like I'm proposing it right now. So for me, it's it's really looking at in detail, learning as much as I can about the history of these organizations and their everyday practices. And of course, going to Smith, looking at, you know, their everyday practices is essential and how that practice is oriented through texts, right? So, you know, like if you have an email or you have, you know, some policy that guides your work, how do people enact those texts in their everyday work? How do we learn on the job through texts as well is really um, fascinating to me. So I'm really going to be taking kind of like a three-tiered method approach, which is going to be participant observation, it's going to be interviews, and it's going to be archival research. I'll probably spend a lot of time up at the Archives of Ontario, which when I was doing my research assistantship when I was pregnant, I spent a lot of time up there. <laughs> so I've gotten to know those folks pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I'm, I'm, I'm attacking uh, the case study methodology anyway. I mean, that sounds really interesting. I'm, I hopefully you'll come back on sometime and tell us kind of how it went and, you know, how things change as they always do, right? When you actually start collecting the work and visiting with people. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to find out uh, what you yeah. learned from the process. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to segment two, what I like to call the middle or the liminal space. Um I wanted to ask you, who is your current academic crush? Who can you just simply not get over? Who are you in love with at the moment? Oh, my goodness. That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just did, like, a comp exam. So there's a number of people that I couldn't put down. I will say, like, I finally, finally, finally had a chance to read Nirmala's work, like, more of Nirmala's work. I'd read, like, an article or two. Uh, this is Nirmala Aravellas, who's at yeah. uh, the University of Alabama. Yeah. Yes, and I can't stop recommending her to people. Like, I've gone to, like, conferences and then be like, have you read Nirmala? Because I think it's really <laughs> useful to you. So I know I'm not, like, I'm behind the times, but at the same time, her work is so relevant. And, like, she really does do that feminist political economy work so well. Um, so, yeah, I was really glad to have a chance to go back to it and kind of and read more, like go into her book and stuff. So that for me was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on the Nirmala train. Yeah, I mean, I was so happy when her book was finally re-released and was um, at one point it was so expensive. It was $100 a copy. So when it was finally re-released, it became kind of more accessible and people could buy it and finally read it. I remember... Like, I spent, I think, probably a month with one of the chapters just trying to kind of, you know, work yeah. through it, decipher it. It was one specifically connected to my research. So, I mean, her work is so relevant for our times. Absolutely. Absolutely is, yeah. And the other one is, like, an actually an academic crush that's, crush that's kind of old school. 
Um, I like going back to people too. Like I go back to Smith a lot. Um, and recently I've been going back to Marta, Marta Russell's work um, as kind of like the iconic early feminist political economist disability study scholar. And her work is so relevant. There's one book um, Mohatra put out um, that really honors her work and a lot of people wrote chapters in that draws on her work. And I've really enjoyed that book. Um, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it's Ravi Mohatra's book. And it's like essays honoring Marta Russell. That's been a, a great read lately. Amazing. Um, so if you did have any advice for uh, young academics or young students or PhD students in your own, uh, who are kind of going through things as you are, what would you give them? What would you tell them? Run far, far away. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, sort of, not really. Um, just take it easier on yourself. Like, work hard but don't crush yourself in the process um the academy is is really good at doing that particularly mad and disabled students um eating us up and chewing us out and so just love yourself and uh, if you don't get through it doesn't mean you're not like doesn't mean you're a failure in any way shape or form these institutions are really ableist they're really sanest um and just know that you you are valuable regardless yeah, regardless of whether, you know, uh, this institution can fit around you, not whether you can fit into the institution, right? Absolutely. It's like, knowledge yeah. to share regardless of whether it's digestible to them or not. Exactly. All right, on to segment three. I like called segment three, outside the project, the research, the work, the art. And uh, this is when we get to know you a little bit better. Um, I want to know who is the most famous person you've met and what was that like? Um... Well, way back in the day, I'm like in my 30s now, so back in my early 20s, I used to go to film fest parties a lot, um, and I will say the one person I got to know, because I saw them at a few different events, um, and it was, it was a really lovely person, actually, is Al Pacino's daughter, Julie. She was working okay. a film um, with a friend of hers that kind of was, um, you know, related to madness, um, and had a chance to go to that screening of that film. And it was around when I was um, co-producing the film The Mars Project, too. So we had a, uh, a few conversations about that. But also, it was just really nice. You know, she's just very down-to-earth, very easygoing. Um, uh, I, you would never know she was, like, a celebrity or a celebrity, celebrity's daughter um, just by, you know, talking to her or approaching her. Um, so I had a chance to get to know her. Um, other than that, huh? I don't know that many celebrities. I'm not cool, Fady. <laughs> <laughs> You should know this by now. <laughs> Trust me, I don't think I could answer that question myself. That's the truth. It's like, I don't know, like, I've met, I recently met um, Ferenc Fanon's daughter. But by met, I mean, I was in a, you know, in a 500-person auditorium where she spoke. So... Seriously, I think that there should be, like, a segment just on, like, people's daughters, people's cool daughters, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I remember I met, um, what's her name, uh, Stacey McKenzie, too. She's like a famous Canadian model. Met her at a film fest party once, too. But other than that, honestly, I'm not even cool enough to know if they are celebrities. Like, if I met them, I would just be my dorky old self, and I wouldn't even know. 
Well, I feel I feel that makes you very endearing. So <laughs> <laughs> when I go to trivia, like I know the historical stuff, any of the pop culture stuff is completely lost on me. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I want to ask about the obscure fact that you carry around. What is the thing you pull out when there's a lull in a conversation or an awkward moment you want to fill? Well, see, here's the funny thing. My memory is really funky. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's completely terrible. Um, so usually if I have an awkward moment in a conversation, I will fill it with some odd fun fact that I've learned in the last 24 hours. It's usually something like newer rather than like going to the same fact because the same fact is gone within 48 hours. <laughs> uh, so within the last 24 hours, I had this revelation, revel revelation, revelation um, that, so I don't know, do you know who uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is? Yes, of course. The mom on Blackish. So I follow her on Instagram and she's just fabulous. Like I think she's a great actress and just like a beautiful woman and she's kooky and all that good stuff. So um, I only just discovered today that she's actually Diana Ross's daughter. <laughs> From the Supremes, like Diana Ross. Like I didn't know this. Like did everybody know this? Am I like totally missing this? I just thought she was like really cool and she is, but huh, who knew? She is really cool. And um, what's really interesting is that she still goes into her mom's closet and raids it and wears, like, some of Diana Ross's, like, outfits oh, from the insane. 70s, 80s, and 90s on, like, you know, contemporary red carpets. I didn't know that. <laughs> so, like, I really she was dressed really well and, like, lots of retro stuff. Yeah, yeah. They're, like, from Diana Ross's closet, which just no, makes them all warm. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's too funny. Okay, so I've got one more fun fact for you. It's not really fun. Yeah. Is, tomorrow is uh, the Bangladesh Independence Day. So it's March 26th is uh, Bangladesh Independence Day, which is like uh, an important celebration. Um, my, my husband is uh, Bangladeshi, so that's something we'll be celebrating. And is there a specific kind of meal that you do? Is it a specific kind of uh, ritual or ceremony? What happens? on Bangladesh Independence Day nothing like that no I think we will just I will say happy Bangladesh Independence Day and that's kind of <laughs> the limit of that all right um are you reading anything right now that you think everyone should be reading uh something like non-academic honestly the only thing that that I have time to read is I don't even have time to read anymore like I have the pile of academic books beside my my that nightstand but the only honestly the other things that I'm reading are like little kids books because I have a two-year-old daughter so if you want me to read the paper bag princess to you for the 17th time I can do that um but that's hey, it's a, it's a lot of little kid books and there's some fabulous little kid books out there don't get me wrong um but like if I have to read monkey puzzle again one more time oh my god <laughs> And besides, of course, raising a young daughter, um, are there any other hobbies that you're enjoying and how did you get started in them? Uh, running. I'm trying to get back into running again. I was an avid uh, runner uh, before I had my daughter, Amal. Um, so that uh, is helping with being cooped up in the house during the pandemic is just getting out, getting some fresh air, going for a run. Um, I got into it again, kind of in my mid 
early to mid twenties when I was coming off psychiatric medication to deal with kind of um, that that process, and also just to keep myself like I was quitting smoking at the time, so it was to to also keep myself um, on that train. Um, and I got absolutely hooked on it because I love the outdoors, and I I found that it's just really energizing and revitalizing. Like if you're running low on spoons, it will give you more spoons. Um, so it was um, yeah, I got really really hooked on it. I ran many many a marathon. And so now I'm just like <laughs> trying to do like baby steps back into it, like short runs, but it feels so good. It feels so good to get like, get outside, feel the fresh air. Um, and that's definitely um, one I've been hooked on. I miss cycling. I used to cycle all over the city. And now that I live in Scarborough, it's not as easy to just get up and cycle, especially when you have like a little kid. Um, so that is hope something I hope to get back into is cycling too. Yeah, the best thing about running is that it's a relatively inexpensive sport. It doesn't really cost a lot of money. You have to have a good pair of shoes and maybe, you know, something to track how much you run. But other than that, it's kind of like you can pick up and do it anywhere. Absolutely. And when you're a broke undergraduate student, it's a good one to pick up. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to end, as I always do, by asking you how you think disability can save the world. Well, if only we'd been listening to all these dis disabled scholars, activists, you know, all this time, I think we'd all be doing in much better shape right now. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous, actually, because disabled people have been interdependent. They've been taking care of each other for so long um, and been fighting for things like, you know, flexible work from home and all these kinds of practices that you know, we're, we're suddenly all able to do, or at least adapt our systems to that, you know, nobody was doing before, nobody was willing to do before other than disabled people who were, you know, actively doing it anyways. Um, so I think disabled people can save the world by, by what they're already doing, which is making it work in a very everyday kind of a way. And we could learn from their practices, which is kind of ties into my research, really. It's like, how are disabled people already doing this right? What can we learn from that? And the other thing I think about disability too is the ways in which um, disability is like a crack in normality, right? Like you can think of it as like this kind of golden crack because it always shows you the, 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 the false nature of normality. Um, and so that that crack is actually a beautiful opening that we can we can recognize like that we don't have to buy into this idea of being normal or idealizing being normal. That's so wonderful. I'm and I think your research does tie into this idea of yeah flexible work schedules, new ways of seeing labor and our relationship to our coworkers, new ways of you know, producing or contributing to society. And I think disability does absolutely do that. Yeah. Uh, and I love the idea of like the, the visual image of disability as a golden crack. That to me mm -hmm. is um, a beautiful way to end uh, a wonderful conversation. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This has been fun. Thanks again to Danielle for coming on the show. Over the next few weeks, we'll be joined by Tobin Healy and Jenna Reed. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fadi Shinuda. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. 
If you're interested in learning more about me uh, and my work, you can check out my website, fadishnuda.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Disability Saves the World.